Hey everybody, welcome to The Lawyer's Daughter. It's Jennifer Carroll. Thank you for tuning in again. Today I want to talk about something that I wrote about for Medium. Um, it was about, it's about the Golden State Killer economy. And I love doing this as a podcast because I can actually talk to you about it with more detail and more, more of my classic emotion. Um, so that's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about this Golden State Killer economy because it clearly has been something that I've participated in that I have been, I don't want to say a victim of, but I've definitely been caught up in it, as you know. And I think it's a really important thing that I, I don't think we've taken the time to think about in a constructive way. And I'd actually love somebody to do more research on this. I think if we went through and looked at all of the serial killers that are out there and what they've done, a lot of them have created sub-economies like, like D'Angelo that are fueling what people do. Okay, put my phone on, do not disturb. Okay, so if you, if we could look at Zodiac, we could look at Bundy there. The idea is that these serial killers are not making money off of this, of course. That's not who makes the money. Um, there, there's a potential that D'Angelo's wife could write a book. That would probably make some bank for sure, because Sharon has a view of the story that nobody else has. And I can absolutely see her writing some sort of book or doing something significant to, to generate some revenue off of the crimes. I don't know what her role has been. I don't know what she knew and when she knew it. None of us know that. I don't know that she'd ever tell and in some way she can't implicate herself. So it's interesting, but I suspect, I suspect we'll see something there. Of course, there's James's book. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. There, So there are a lot of books out there. There are movies, there's television shows up the yin yang. There are articles like crazy. And then but but I really wanted to step back and look at the whole big infrastructure of how an economy works around something like a serial killer, which thank God is the exception, not the rule. I mean, I remember, and I, I've told this story when I found out that Dad and Charlene were killed by a serial killer. That's what made me sit down and take the deep breath because it's, I need to go find the statistic, but it's something like 0.01%. It's so tiny. Most of the time, in most cases, you know who the perpetrator is. You've had some sort of dealing with them. It's just not random. Random crime is fairly unusual still, thank God. It is still something that we don't have to worry about a lot. It is the exception of the rule. Typically, you know your perpetrator, which is sad in and of itself that means that's people hurting each other who know each other which it's it's really sad we need to we need to talk about that in our society we need to deal with mental health we need to to accept that sexual assaults happening among family members and among people we date that's all really sad troubling things about our society and our culture and what we do but in this case, let's talk about something big like a serial killer, which is unusual. And sometimes I still kind of go, wah, how am I even in all of this? How did this even happen? Because it's, it's the scope and the depth of this crime and the case itself is sometimes mind-blowing to me. And I'm sitting in the middle of it. Definitely been the last two years of my life in a way I never expected. So I think the biggest question people have, and I am one victim in particular, her neighbors call her out all the time. They think she's making money off of this. The biggest misperception is that the victims make money. With few exceptions, that's just not the case. So let, let's go through it. Let's start at the top. Okay, so when we look at this idea of true crime, it's an interesting entertain, it has interesting entertainment value. And I think that's because we hope to learn from it. And it teaches us how, not only how to survive a crime, how to be resilient, 
how to get help as a trauma survivor, true crime can give us a really good way to act out and try some of the things on that um, allow us to, to not necessarily master the topic, but feel more competent should it happen to us. It's especially true if you've actually been a victim of, of crime in some way, shape or form, or you've loved someone that's been through victim of crime. You don't expect it to happen. Um, today, this is uh, August 3rd, the, the video is out of the judge, the federal judge whose son was killed by the crazy man and her husband was wounded. And I watched her in that video in her first statement to the public. She never expected to be part of true crime. That she, she was a judge. She saw it. She dealt with it. It was in her life. But never, ever did she expect that somebody would walk in and just execute her son. So that, that in some ways is why I think we're attracted to true crime. And it's definitely more of a white person's phenomenon. It, there's research out there that show that that's true. I wish that weren't the case. I think we need to bring in more stories from the people of color and they don't need to be like the god-awful Breonna Taylor story where she was just brutalized and murdered with really just very, very, very bad police procedure, just incredibly bad. And if you haven't watched Trevor Noah's um, video about the Breonna Taylor case, you should. It's really good. It's about 11 minutes, but he so aptly describes the difference in our justice system for white people and for black people and i think it's it's worth your time to go look at so yeah there's lots of things true crime can still aspire to do we should be including more stories we should be including people of color we should care just as much when a child of color is kidnapped as a white child is kidnapped and i i suspect there's lots of inherent reasons why it's been a phenomenon in among white women in particular I hope to God it doesn't come from this place that believes that people of color are the boogeymen trying to hurt us. Because I, I know for me, that's not the case at all. It just happens. D'Angelo could have been anybody. I mean, honestly, could have been anybody. The fact that it was a privileged white male doesn't surprise me at all, to be perfectly honest. But, okay, ah, put the, I'll put all my soapboxes away because I can get started on this. And I, I want to focus right now on the economy part because I think it is a a an important thing for us to be aware of and to consider. And I'll start at the top because that has to do with the law and order side of things. So immediately if we have a serial killer or somebody who's criming like D'Angelo was criming, it triggers a lot of expense. This is expense, by the way, that comes at the hands of the taxpayers. We pay for this. So when you have someone like D'Angelo who starts committing crimes in the 70s, you have law enforcement, you have investigations going on, um, you have people going to the hospital for being harmed. I d we don't, our tax dollars don't pay for that. That's um, weird and sad. When you are a victim of crime, those medical expenses land on you. I think there's been studies done about all the people and expense that happened down in Las Vegas when that mass shooting happened, um, from, uh, uh, the people were at that concert. Interestingly enough, in our whole true crime world, we still haven't figured out the, the medical expense part of this whole thing. It's, it's a burden borne by the person who's been hurt. And that right there is, is potentially as victimizing as the crime itself because nobody wants to wake up destitute because they had to pay for medical expenses that they didn't ask for nor wanted. So we have, so we're going to leave healthcare to the side because that's just a hot mess over there. That's typically American hot mess where we just ignore it and we don't deal with it and we don't embrace it or make it part of our model for how we deal with crime. But what we do do, what we do virulently in the United States is we scream law and order, law and order, law and order. 
the fact is the law and order comes at a price. And so it remains wise to be judicious about law and order. There is a lot, we're at a time right now where we're reimagining what the role of our police are, what the role of the other parts of our community that haven't been funded that could make a difference, mental health, um, medical care, ironically enough. Some of those other things that could reach out to people who are doing the criming. But in the meantime, when we scream lock her up or lock him up, what we're really saying is that we're willing to pay for both the pursuit of the criminal and then the defense of the criminal on the other side. For every person arrested, we also provide the defense. So not only do you have the police, so all the investigations that went until D'Angelo, but then you get to the actual arrest and now you trigger a tremendous number of additional costs, court costs, lawyers' fees, and it is on both sides. And I think this is the fact that so many of us forget. This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing that it's on both sides, but it it does suggest that we might want to consider temperance in terms of what we consider to be the right way to handle crime. Maybe all crimes don't qualify for a trial. Maybe all crimes don't need the same level of defense. Maybe there's a way we could start to turn some of this um, punishment for crime into something that's actually beneficial to the community and that provides a sense of restitution or a sort of restitution. Imagine if you were arrested as a looter and you were sentenced to go in to do work, to repair what you damaged. Suddenly we're getting both restitution as taxpayers, we're getting the restitution. Um, also the person who did the looting and did the miserable behavior is having to work their butt off to restore what they damaged. Suddenly the consequences start to map to the behavior and it's an opportunity to maybe regain some of what we as taxpayers invest in having law and order and a civilized society function with certain rules that we all agree to and that we hold dear. So I, I'm, I'm bringing this up because I just need to start thinking about it. I know I don't have all the answers. None of us have all the answers. That's why we're all talking about it right now, but it's a, it's a way to think about it in a way that we trigger our gut, when we react from the gut, lock them up, it sometimes then gets mangled and we don't necessarily put together the best decisions in terms of fiscal responsibility and lasting effect. So locking everybody up has been great for the prison industrial complex and all the private entities making money off of this. And by the way, we're not doing any service to the prisoners either. We're not rehabilitating anymore. We're basically at turning them into little mini Lord of the Flies situations where now, unfortunately, everybody's dying from COVID. But just because you're a criminal doesn't mean that you deserve to die in prison. Some of them do. My friend, Mr. D'Angelo, wouldn't really bother me. But it's not, that's not how it works. We should be helping humans be better and we should be allowing people who want to redeem themselves, who want some form of redemption to have that. If that means work or restitution, whatever that is, but we don't have good paths for that right now. It becomes a dollars and cents transaction approach to law and order. And that I think diminishes our civility and it diminishes our societal response to what's really happening here. So yeah, big words, lots of heavy thoughts, but the idea is lock her up and lock him up is not a simple answer and they has consequences. So, so it's a real opportunity for us to look at what we're doing and figure out better ways to do it. And all of that costs money. So in the case of the D'Angelo case, they were forecasting a $21 million 
price tag for the trial. That's because it involved so many jurisdictions. I mean, I think he crimed in 16 counties and he has charges in six jurisdictions. So that's a big deal. And so all of those things ended up driving up the cost. And, and that is more than the taxpayer should bear. In my humble opinion, it's way more than the taxpayer should bear. Just because you are really good at criming doesn't mean we should have to pay all this money to support you through the end of your criming, which is the court trial and legal expenses. And we have, I mean, the good news about a plea is it saved us a lot of money. Money was still spent. Apparently the Sac State thing just alone was quite expensive. Makes sense because they had to do the COVID cleaning. I'm sure they needed special cleaning people. They had to have media. There were media there. There were lots of security guards there because of course now we were at a public venue when there aren't many and you don't want to have somebody come in and do something stupid like bring a gun or try to shoot D'Angelo or whatever other silly things could happen. So I can see how these things um, rack up, but we still got out of this very, very affordably. So law and order costs money. We pay for both sides. That's important because that's what, that's what we believe in. We believe in the rule of law, which means you are entitled to a defense but it does all come at a cost. So that's the first thing I wanna put in your brain. And that's to me the biggest thing where we suck the money down and it's how, how, a, how a serial killer can create an economy, right? Right there, travel, all the infrastructure, hotels. Like we, we fired up everything. Just with just the trial itself fired up a lot of jobs and created a lot of um, uh, revenue for and, and expense for different organizations. Now we go, and, and we didn't, the AB bill, the bill that went to California, it got put on hold, and then I don't think it got funded because, well, now we have a plea, but at the time, they were still waiting to see how this was going to play and if we were really going to have a trial. So I think in a lot of ways, it's probably good we didn't, even though I will forever um, have the satisfaction of what a trial would have told us and to hear a lot of the other evidence, but let's see what comes out. So then the next thing that uh, where the money is made, where aside again we're going to set healthcare aside because i don't even know how to get my arms around that one and don't know how to even begin to understand the economy of crime around healthcare but it's got to be huge in america especially if you add gun sh being shot by a gun to the mix um the other thing is the the next area i looked at was the idea of what the media and how how a serial killer generates a ton of media and in this case i mean the press i want to talk about the fourth estate so I'm a firm believer in journalism. I used to do journalism in school and I loved it. I, I fancy myself a closet journalist because I really care about uh, trying to get to the bottom of things. I care about doing the research to know if what I am saying is true and what I am reading is true. And I do think journalism can uncover secrets. And secrets are what, of course, get us in trouble most of the time when there's a secret. It can be a political secret. It can be a simple secret. But the journalists are good. In this case, there are journalists, even on this specific case, who were able to uncover additional facts about D'Angelo and more information about where he was and what he was doing. That's an important role of journalism. Sometimes they break a story early. It's the first time I've been involved in a story where having the news break early was such a relief to me. And that had to do with the plea. On the June 1st is when we found out about the plea. They asked us to keep quiet about it until the news was out there. For my prosecutor, she said about two weeks. She figured it would stay secret for about two weeks. 
I have to say with all the people involved and all the people that knew, I am shocked it lasted that long, but that's almost exactly how long it lasted. And then I'll never forget that Monday, two weeks after the first, that would probably be the 15th, Jen. Um, I got the call from two different reporters who absolutely positively had the story. I don't know where they got the story. I don't know who gave it to them, but they had the story. So then I, I made the personal decision to go ahead and talk and confirm what I knew, again, limited based on what I was told, but I went ahead and confirmed it. And I think the minute that story broke, Oof, it was like I could breathe. There was nothing worse than keeping that secret for two weeks because for me, Madam Extrovert, I needed to talk about it. And I needed to be able to, to see what other people thought. That's some of how I um, cook my belief system is that I go and test the ideas and listen to others. I, that's one of the reasons I love doing the Zoom meetings with you guys because I, I like to be able to discuss it and debate it and really um, pull the threads and see if there's real substance there. So the media has been incredible. And in that case, breaking the story really helped me. Some of them are good and some of them are crappy. And there was nothing worse than when you have a crappy reporter come up to you and say, who are you again? And what's your story? Like, I don't have time for this. I, I don't expect everybody to know everything, but if you're coming to cover the story, you should, it, especially, especially as we got into this and it had been, a year and a year and a half into this story after the arrest, the, the reporters could do a tiny bit of research. I didn't expect them to spend hours, but you could do a few clicks and get a little bit of the background before you show up at, at court. And I understand there's high turnover in the media, but you can tell the good reporters because they stay on the story. And that's a note to all publishers. It really pays off when there's a reporter that sticks to the story. Let them stick to the story, please. Because as they, the more they understand it, the best stories have come from the reporters who have lived it, who have really dug in and who understand the nuance and the subtleties of the story. In Medium, when I wrote the article, I called out to you that I particularly, I have actually three that I love. One is Paige St. John from the LA Times, Sam Stanton from the Sacramento Bee, and then of course, Megan Diskin from the Ventura County Star. And Megan's been great for me because she's my hometown paper and we've basically become friends, which now I understand is super important for the reporter because it means we can have a lot of talks off the record and it get, helps her understand who I am and, and my motivations and what I care about so that when she writes, she does such a good job reporting on me. Same with Paige and Sam, frankly. We've had time to talk and get to know each other a bit. So when they write, it feels like they really do understand what I mean when I say the things I say versus just taking the verbatim and posting it. So. I think it's a good thing that something like the Golden State Killer creates an economy for reporters. It's fine if they make money off it. The irony is the news, the media still doesn't make the kind of money off of it as the entertainment industry does. And that's probably the sad commentary on our society. It is, it is stunning to me that we're at a place where we don't pay for the news like we should. And I try to subscribe to a few online papers that I care about. But man, the minute we distributed it and everybody has to subscribe to everything, it's just almost overwhelming and it can start to creep up, especially if you're unemployed like me. So uh, yeah, it can start to creep up, but it's still something I believe in. So I still will vote with my dollars. I still believe in supporting good publications. So it's just interesting that in America, we're think we feel perfectly comfortable with trading off the news in this god awful, god awful trend of saying fake news. And let me be clear, there is 
information out there that is false, but I would not call it news. News, as it is intended, is factual. If you walk in a room and said, Betty's getting a divorce from her husband, and you heard that at the gym, that's not news, that's gossip. Remember gossip? Gossip's the thing we used to all get in trouble for. Nobody even hears that word anymore. Gossip is the stuff that you shit spread around that's unsubstantiated. And when I gossip now, I literally say, this is gossip. I don't have proof. I have nothing I can point to to verify that this is the truth. But I'll share with you what I've heard. That is gossip. Fake news is gossip. News is news. And it's not fake unless somebody's lying. And again, that's not news, is it? That's a lie. But we seem to be uncomfortable saying lies, too. We seem to be uncomfortable naming things as lies. But I try really hard, even in my social media, if I retweet something or share something, I typically will go, uh, I'll say 99 times out of 100 because I have made mistakes, but I will typically go vet the source and make sure it's a, a good source. And I will vet the truth, the veracity of the of the statement, because I don't, just don't want to participate in furthering gossip and lies. So we're going to use the real words for them. And because of that, now we've attacked the news, which used to be the thing that uncovered secrets and told us the truth. Incredibly, incredibly essential at a time when our government is not telling the truth. The fourth estate is more important than anything. So all right, so we'll get back to Golden State economy, right? Because that's where I started. But this, the, the thing about the economy is that we should be paying for our news and we should be, and the news should be making more money because that's really what matters to us as a society. It's critical for a democracy. It's so important. And the time we've spent tearing it down has really done us a disservice. Instead, we look to things that I will call infotainment or entertainment. And, um, and that's where things get really messy and it's and it's honestly one of the reasons i got so upset about the paul holes thing and the hbo documentary so let me back out a second another area where people are making money of course is on the big entertainment and there is really no there's no responsibility at all there other than to their viewers if you look at how an entertainment model works it's all about eyeballs or clicks if you want to consider it that way if you can't produce something that gets eyeballs, you're doing a bad job in the entertainment market. That's super different from the news. The news should be based on if you're uncovering secrets and revealing truth, that's what should drive eyeballs. But in entertainment, it's the salaciousness. It's the, it's the um, anything that makes you like, I gotta see this, I gotta know more. It's been interesting on the HBO special because so many people were looking forward to it, as was I. I honestly was super excited about it until I saw what it turned out to be and I then got really saddened by it because it just it felt like such a letdown of what I thought the promise was and what I was told it would be. And interestingly enough, while it may have had eyeballs, I suspect the, the poor reviews came out pretty quickly that this wasn't about our case particularly. It was really about Michelle. And if you were interested in that, go for it. Like that's where the, that's what the story went to. It wasn't until I think this last episode, the one that, that rolled last night, Sunday night, which was the episode six, the final episode of the show, which many people thought that's it. It's over. Like, wait, it didn't even do anything yet. 
but they at least got to see how we've come together. It was kind of cool because you got to see what I talk about, like how we're in Chris's backyard and how we talk to one another and support one another and come together and hold each other up. That episode, and then also it had Bonnie and I think some family members, like you started to understand more of the case itself rather than Michelle's journey. So there you go. That's entertainment. That's how people get paid. And the biggest and most important thing you need to know about entertainment always need to know this is they are not under any obligation to tell the truth so we'll go back to my paul holes thing and why i was so upset one of the things that happens in entertainment is that someone that is perceived to be in authority and in this case paul holes will say something that is not true in this case speculation and i think they've added that in but i haven't gone back to hear it but I will, I'm gonna go check it now. I wanted to wait all the episodes came out. I'm gonna go back and take a look. But they, to have Paul, and I don't, I'm sure he doesn't say maybe, or it could have been, or I'm speculating, or my hypothesis, I bet that's not what he says, but we'll find, I'll go find out, because I don't know. But the problem is the minute it comes out of his mouth, and this is the problem with entertainment, people believe it's true. And that's a responsibility that anyone in any position of power or authority has, which is to tell the truth. Because the minute you have that kind of authority, you have the responsibility to use that authority to be truthful and to do good. Just how it works, I've decided. That's the rule of humanity. With great responsibility comes, uh, wait, what comes, what is it? With great something comes responsibility. With great power comes responsibility. It's true. That is your responsibility. You get to have the privilege of your power by tr being responsible with information. And so the issue I have with the entertainment industry and the reason it's unfortunate it makes so much money is that it doesn't have to be true. And I think anybody who's watched any specials about their loved ones who've been featured on Dateline or 2020 or anywhere, anyway, anywhere out there, 2020 is under, is kind of that weird, is it news? Is it entertainment? you decide. I do believe they try hard to do a good job. Mike, that's based on firsthand experience with that team, but I've never done a rhetorical analysis or any kind of analysis of their shows overall to know if they are ever disputed or considered inaccurate. But I bet they miss little things. Everybody does. The point is that entertainment doesn't have to be true, and, and yet they can make all the money all the money they want that's what the whole thing is designed to do is to get you to tune in and then sell the commercials and sell the subscriptions and they make all the money there's another part of the golden state killer economy that i find fascinating and it's um it's frequent now in the true crime community and those are the podcasters and the writers so they're not this these are not particularly journalists although some of them may aspire to be. Some of them are practitioners, former lawyers, um, former investigators, people who have at least had their uh, toe in the water in terms of the business that they're reporting on. But generally, generally, and of course there's always exceptions, I find these people to be incredibly earnest and committed to telling as much of the truth as possible. They'll go get interviews, they'll do the research, they'll go down those rabbit holes. I mean, that's actually some of the beauty and the thrill of the podcasts, right? Because they do go down the rabbit hole and that's where you, it's interesting. So, like I have one friend, Deep Throat, she was on my podcast, but she's looking into D'Angelo's familiar his, ancestral history. Uh, 
it looks like he could be related to a crime family out of New York. Like, wouldn't that be interesting? There's a rabbit hole that's interesting, right? And yet we're not, I don't, I mean, I, I need to look at it clo more closely or I would tell you more, but I haven't vetted it for myself. So I don't really want to pass it on. So that would be gossip at this point, just gossip. We need to actually prove the veracity, but that's what a podcaster does. And I think it, it what's fascinating to me is the podcasters are doing this out of their passion because Lord knows there are few of them that get paid. If they make money off their podcast, it's incremental revenue. It is not fundamental life-sustaining revenue. And it's the same with the writers. And I'm finding a lot of those folks on Medium, but they write for other things as well. They are interested in the story. They want to do everything in their power to tell it as um, truthfully and as clearly. And in my experience, as compassionately as possible with regard to the victims. And that is super interesting. And, and again, these are not people that are getting rich. Uh, you do have, you, it, with the exception of like a Michelle McNamara. And then there's a good example of a book who got stuff, that got stuff wrong and yet is a New York Times bestseller. So there you go. When things become, the more commercial something becomes, potentially, maybe the more it's less likely to be trusted. Although I don't really think that's true. I'm making that up. I think that it really depends on who the author is. And that's why knowing the credentials of who's doing the work makes the big difference. As far as I'm concerned, Michelle McNamara didn't have a ton of credentials in this area. She was a true crime writer. Yay, that's great. I believe what she did in her early writing, she really dug in and she did do a lot of research and she was committed to doing research. And then, But then something went wrong. Something about this case, the toxic level of this case, I'm not sure what, but something went wrong. And that, that really would have been the part of the special I would have been very interested in. I really would have been much more interested to hear a psychologist or a psychiatrist come on and talk about how 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 she lost control what started out as something that was her passion something she cared about but it, it the toxicity of it and potentially she wasn't really bred for that i mean who is but it, but cops and stuff go through training people in law enforcement are start to build up a bit of that thick skin I'm not sure that she had that, and I'm not sure she had support for that. I don't even know what her support looked like. That would have been interesting to learn, too. All I heard was a bunch of people on that special pressuring her to do more faster. I didn't see, I didn't hear anything about any of them realizing the woman was falling apart. So, okay, digress again. Put the soapbox back under. But my point is, that's just, my point is that, look, at she has a New York Times bestseller from a, because of a confluence of factors, JDD getting arrested, she accidentally died i mean horrible things happened good and bad but it and so i i think that contributed to the book doing so well for sure but it also speaks to you don't have to tell the truth to get paid and so that's why i think looking at this economy and then the the motivation and the and the underlying causes of how this economy happens are worth our evaluation because the fact of the matter is we vote with our dollars and we vote with our eyeballs and our clicks. And it's up to us to be good consumers of this kind of information, especially if we care about true crime and we care about the victims and we care about the rule of law and we even care about the Innocence Project and people who didn't do the crime being treated just as fairly as people that did. Those things all matter when we look at the sources that we use for information. And so I think ultimately, and it's probably because I'm a rhetoric major and I'm used to doing criticism and looking at things with, through those eyes, 
that it's really important that we all take responsibility for how we consume information and then how we produce it as well if you happen to be a true crime producer. And like I said, in my experience, most of the podcasters and anecdotal writers actually do a better job than some of the big ones because the, the, the motivation doesn't come from money. The motivation comes from caring. The motivation comes from compassion and interest. And whenever you're interested in something, you're more likely to go do the research to really know what you're talking about. So this now brings me to the part about me, because I think folks wonder, okay, Jen, you're podcasting, you write, um, I'm doing what I can. So I've been, I've been quasi-employed for the last two years, not a lot. But one of the things before I ever started um, thinking about monetization, which is the word that we use and in, uh, I use with my clients over in Silicon Valley, monetizing your content, some way to turn your content into money. What I've learned so far, and there's probably a lot more I could learn about this, but there are a few ways to earn money off of content you produce. When I started, I didn't care about that at all. In fact, I was just blogging because that's how I that's how I express myself. That's how I get my thoughts out. If you look, I have blogs on jcarroll.com that go back forever. I blogged about Katie. I blogged about homeschool. I blogged about her traveling abroad. I stayed home and she traveled. So I followed her trips while she traveled. I did the, I did the, um, kind of the trip blog for all the parents who were staying at home so they could know where their kid was that day and what they'd done. I just, that's how I expressed myself is to write. But then I realized, oh my God, I'm producing a lot of content. Maybe there's an opportunity to make some money off of it. So the things that you're seeing me do is, um, of course, use social media to, to promote my content, which is basically the most affordable way to do it. I don't buy advertising. I've tested ads. I don't love ads. I really don't want to give money to Facebook. That just oh, makes me sick to think of giving any money to Facebook. Um, I haven't tried Twitter ads for myself. I've done them for clients. Twitter ads aren't bad, but it's not really what I want. I, I don't really need more followers. I, I prefer to get followers that care about what I'm talking about. I don't really want to go buy more followers, but I use social media to promote my content. And every time you guys retweet or like me, I just, oh, I appreciate it so much because you're just helping me spread the word, right? That's how the virality of social media works. I then then do the podcast with Podbean, supposedly, supposedly after a certain amount of followers and listeners, they'll begin to insert ads. I can control where the ads go. I've made a conscious decision to not use the ad that's the most premium place, which is in the middle of my podcast, because I'm talking about murder and feelings and things, and I don't want to have you sit through an ad right in the middle of that conversation. So I've said it's okay to put them at the beginning. Today, I'm gonna to try testing one at the end that's my own ad, just to see how it looks, but it's at the end, so I don't care. It's like when you're getting off your tuchus to go turn off the phone or whatever that is, you're getting ready to, to stop listening. It, you can listen to the ad or not, I don't care. But that, but ads theoretically could be a form of revenue. I have not triggered that yet. I do not have enough listeners to have triggered that. I also started posting because of my daughter. I've started porting these podcasts over to YouTube. YouTube's interesting because after you have 400 subscribers, no, 1,000 subscribers, 400, no, 1,000 subscribers, 400. Oh my God, how do I not know this right now? I think it's 400 subscribers and 1,000 hours of viewing. You trip into monetization. Again, I don't know what that's going to look like or how that works. I've never done it before. Katie did all this work for me to explain how it, how, what I want to 
achieve and taught me how to do the covers for my videos and everything else. But I thought I'm going to start doing more of these on Zoom because I can do video and it does port over to the podcast really easily. So depending on how you like to listen slash watch, you can either watch me on YouTube, you could subscribe to my YouTube channel, or you could listen to the podcast. I don't care. Whatever works for you. As, as far as I'm concerned, it's just a matter of me producing two different um, tracks of information, but that's not even hard. So YouTube potentially could be a way to uh, generate revenue. Again, haven't seen any of that yet little ways off there as well and then finally now i'm writing for medium which is pretty cool because medium is a five dollar a month subscription the joke is my mom said have you made enough to pay for your subscription yet uh, i just made enough to pay for one month of my subscription so yay me but medium is uh an aggregated way to get your story out there but then the, when people read it if they're paying members we get a little cha-ching, just a little, I almost think of it's almost like a residual check. I think they had that on Jerry Seinfeld episode once. Yes, Jerry Seinfeld, look it up for all you youngsters, uh, where Jerry got a bunch of checks that he had had all for like 10 cents each. That's kind of how it works. It's little tiny, tiny cash register rings that add up as people read stories on Medium. But since I love to write and I've written a lot and it's stuff I care about, it's not that hard. So that's another way I'm trying to monetize the content I'm producing right now. And it's another way that a serial killer creates an economy because I, this wouldn't have existed if he hadn't killed my dad and my stepmom, right? I wouldn't have anything to talk about, which I got to say at times is really what I would have preferred. But here I am where I am and I'm here doing what I'm doing. So there are ways to generate money i just haven't done any of that yet there are a few of the victims have been paid for uh their um the heck not performances they're they're going on the show their presence uh, those most of that happened prior to the arrest and it was done with places like nancy grace or um, dr phil or those places where they have a that's their whole budget is that's what they do they pay for guests to come on but typically when you see someone on television most typically including me on 2020 or any of us in, in unmasking a killer we are not getting paid that is not it's something we agreed to do because we either care about our story getting out there accurately which is something many of us care about or we really want the story to be recorded for history in a way that's meaningful and that's important and we see the value and and y'all know i love todd Lindsay. i think he did such a great job of balancing entertainment and taking care of the victims and telling the story a very different experience with hbo i, I loved all the people i met at hbo initially i'm just super disappointed that it wasn't what they said it was going to be that's the part like i just feel Oof, I put in a lot of work for that team. I mean, a lot of work of my time and everything. Um, and I'm just so bummed that that the, the story ended up being all about Michelle, which is, again, that would have been fine, but I didn't need to be in that. I didn't need to participate in that. That didn't need me in it. Like, why was I even part of it? I mean, it's weird. Like, I just didn't need to be there. So that's how, so yes, and HBO, we didn't expect it. I, I agreed to do all of that without thinking there was any money involved, but they did do a little um, thing, and I'm not supposed to really talk about it, but I, I, I feel so important to me to be so transparent about it. There was, a, like, I'll call it a little stipend, honorarium. It came after the fact. didn't know I was uh, working for cash up front. I would have done it regardless, and um, honestly, if I didn't need to live on it, I was going to put that in my scholarship fund, but I 
did need to live on it. So I ended up living on it <laughs> and using it to live on, but it was just not very much money. You just need to know it was not very much money. In fact, probably my medium revenue will start to catch up to it at some point. It's that small. So that's how it works. I, wanna, I, I, I think it's important to talk about because folks have this fantasy that victims are making money. And the reality is every victim I know is out of pocket. We're, we're, we have expenses we didn't expect. We talked, when I talked at the beginning of this, how medical care isn't even covered. There, is, there are victim compensation funds, but they don't begin to cover what the expenses are. Now, we have a unique case because it's 40 years old and I couldn't begin to produce receipts. But even if you think of the shootings and people being harmed all the time by law enforcement or not, the people getting shot in Portland by rubber bullets, I don't believe that there's any sort of way for them to get compensated for those medical expenses. It'll be interesting to see what the stories end up being about that. But I think we have a huge gap in medical expenses and crime recovery and victim compensation, which is which to me should be the corollary of the NRA. If you're going to like make all this money off of guns, you should at least have a fund to pay for gunshot victims' wounds, especially especially something like Parkland down in Florida where people get hurt. A lot of people get hurt. I mean, that's just one example. We, we know we have mass shootings today is the anniversary of the, of the mass shooting at the Walmart in El Paso. And those people don't get compensated in a way that makes up for what their lives were beforehand. So we still have a lot of work to do, but it's interesting that true crime and someone like D'Angelo could create an economy that's all based around crime. Kind of sickening if you think about it. It's actually really sickening. I wish we could just spend our money on things that move us forward as a society and not keep making the spending money on repairs. Because to me, this feels like money on repairs. Oof. All right, so lots of soapbox there, but it's a bit, it's something I think about a lot because uh, I've definitely been in the middle of it and I know people wonder and I wanted to be as transparent as possible about it from here, but also have you think about law and order, how we spend, the consequences of how we spend our money, what we might want to get for our money, how there might be other ways to have restitution happen with criminals so that it advances our society instead of just as seen as an expense on a, on a, as a transaction that we pay for their private prison. They get shitty treatment and they come out and just reoffend because they're so they're so broken. We all we've done is break them. I am going to be putting up a survey you, uh, right now. The, the most action, biggest action item you have right now is if you want to attend any of the zooms that I'm doing the week of sentencing, and I'm going to do one every day for for discussion, basically for for because I'm interested in your take and there's going to be a lot of victim impact statements the registration is open if you go to jcarroll.com or the lawyersdaughter.com the links are there to register for those zooms i did my best to find a time that worked pragmatically for when the statement should be done and also trying to get early enough for europe uh, probably didn't hit it just right but um but hopefully it's close but if you would like to attend any of those zooms and you can attend whichever one you want or all of them, I don't care. Um, you just need to register so you, you have the link. Those, those links are, those registration links are posted. And then I am working on the survey of what's next for the lawyer's daughter, um, who you'd like to hear from, what kind of content you'd like me to cover. Like I said, I, I'd like to try to go through the end of the year and then probably put this baby to bed, but um, I'll do a season three after conviction, I mean, after sentencing, and we'll go clean up and talk to some of the people I couldn't talk to before. And um, I, like I said, Dr. Speth, our coroner from Ventura, 
Um, I'm hoping to, I don't know if I can get my prosecutor to talk, but I'm hoping to get some other folks like that to come on and, to, and Carol Daly would be one. Some of the others who haven't been able to speak because the case has been open. If you have thoughts about, and James Huddle, I'm hoping to get him as well. So I'll put that list up on the website and I'll just put the survey up and I will have that link for you shortly. I just need to get that developed and posted. Thank you so much for listening to The Lawyer's Daughter. Until next time, have a great day. Hey guys, it's Jen. And if you enjoy spending time with me, check out the Life Coach Pod. It's a life positive show that you can watch on YouTube or listen to just like any other podcast. I toggle between information I research and share and then interviews with life coaches and others who are doing their best to move us forward. I think I have something for everyone. Don't let the pandemic get you down. Visit lifecoachpod.com and subscribe. Regular people, real wisdom. That's the Life Coach Pod. Resume life. Venture Highway